0: Welcome to the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore. We are all lifelong learners, and nowhere is this more relevant than in the practice of leadership. Our goal is continual learning and improvement. Let's get after it. Knowledge is power, now more than ever.
1: Hey everybody. This is MK Palmore. Thanks for joining us on the Leadership Student Podcast. Today I am joined by Lori Drowdy, uh, who I'm very excited to have this conversation with. Lori and I uh, overlapped uh, during our time in the military. Didn't know one another at the time, but we were both uh, veterans of the U.S. military. Lori, though, has a much more fantastic story than the one that I have, and we're going to dive into that here in a couple of seconds. But Lori is currently a executive coach, a leadership coach, and I know that uh, for time being, she did have her own podcast uh, having conversations about leadership, and I'm going to point you to that towards the end of this conversation, but we're excited to have her in the virtual studio today. Lori Drowdy, thank you for joining me.
2: Thank you, MK. I'm so excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation.
1: So, Lori, I I teased up a little bit there uh, about your background, but uh, give us a little bit of a snapshot about what you do today in the leadership realm and we're going to get into I think some exciting conversations about some portions of your background
2: great. So today I support leaders in their teams and I help them become better at what they do. And it's um, it's a, a role that I really enjoy because I spent a long time in the Navy as well as in Silicon Valley leading teams. And it's always been something I'm, I've been passionate about and I've really enjoyed. And so being able now to help a lot of different leaders and teams work together better and, you know, face challenges and get through them together better, that's been very personally fulfilling. So... Um, that's
1: what I do now. So um, this idea of being a leadership coach or an executive coach, I think was probably not a um, well-formed concept two decades ago. Right. Uh, but I, I think today, though, we're seeing much more of this in uh, in the industry. And I think folks like yourself are finding it uh, to be an industry you can thrive in. Talk a little bit about what your personal leadership experiences were that that led you to deciding, hey, I just want to be in a position to help others.
2: I'd say my leadership journey started at a fairly early age. You know, I think like many people um, in school where I was in organizations like um, student government, um, I wasn't a huge athlete in school, to be honest, but I did theater, which actually requires a lot of teamwork. And um, participating in student government was probably my first foray into leadership. And I, what I really loved about it was that it required my ability to work together with people and to understand what people needed and to have empathy and to, um, you know, be curious about what was going on with people and ask questions. And so, um, so being in those roles and learning how to influence people and to do that in service of a mission or a goal was really intriguing to me. Um, so, Going into college, I went into Navy ROTC. Uh, I was uh, commissioned from the University of San Diego's rotc program. And during college as well, it was a a wonderful opportunity through Navy ROTC to have positions of leadership in the ROTC unit and uh, get that experience at a really young age. I mean, you know, before I was 21, I was responsible for, you know, groups of students and other midshipmen and helping them be successful in the program. And then Uh, move on to our various fields. So what I love about the military is that it really does give you the opportunity to uh, develop your leadership skills at a really young age. And, but not, you know, uh, you don't get, well, you kind of get thrown into the fire a little bit, but there are also really um, experienced, trained, you know, seasoned, enlisted senior enlisted people who help you and support you in that as well. So there's this great balance of, um, you know, the officer and the senior enlisted to help support a team. So that, you know, early experience, also growing up as the daughter of a Marine Corps officer, actually two Marine Corps officers, because my mother served as a Marine for a year. Uh, but back then, <laughs> and when you got pregnant, you had to get out. So um, I was the one that ended my mother's military career. And uh, but those those values and those concepts of, you know, taking care of your people and and. Uh, accomplishing a mission, like those were definitely, um, I guess, drilled into <laughs> me from a very early age. So that experience all contributed to my desire to continue in people management and leadership roles as I got older.
1: So uh, before we get too deep into the, uh, the the question set here, both parents, United States Marines, uh, what was that like growing up in that household?
2: <laughs> oh, gosh. Um <laughs> It was interesting, but it was it was good. Um my parents are both super loving, caring, wonderful parents, um disciplinarians. Um they had very high standards for all three of us. I have two younger brothers. And um I just you know I'm really grateful for my childhood and for um for them, you know, always expecting me to to do well and uh helping me expect that of myself as well. Um, but yeah, there are lots of jokes about You know how other kids would bring home um, crayon drawings and I'd have like my target from the target range (laughs) up on the refrigerator so um, but no it was it was really good and I what I also loved was, you know, part of being a military brat is that you move around pretty often we moved at least every three years and It really taught me and my brothers how to make friends quickly and how to adapt to new environments and how to be open to to new places. And so I think those were skills that have served me well uh, throughout my life.
1: Did you always know you wanted to serve? I mean, at, at a pretty early or young age, did you know you wanted to serve in the military?
2: I did, and I think a lot of it was just seeing the example of my father. You know, I, I didn't get to see my mom's example, but um, just seeing that that dedication to something bigger than himself, and also knowing, you know, how how much I value this country and freedom and independence and all the things that you know that we appreciate about America that sometimes I think we take for granted about America, and even though. There are many, many things that are not perfect. Um, I still think it's the best country in the world. And so, yes, I definitely wanted to, to support that. And, and I was willing to give my life for that because th- that is how important it was to me. And I think growing up in a military family, you certainly have that sense of duty, um, at least in my family we did. And uh, two out of the three of us kids ended up serving we always joke about my youngest brother, Ryan, you know, when he was younger, he was kind of the black sheep. He definitely was getting into trouble and stuff. And he likes to say that he couldn't even get a commission in the salvation army. <laughs> so he's, <laughs> but he's incredible. He's a wonderfully su- successful, great family. I mean, he, he's doing great. So, and he, we all like to poke fun at each other. So <laughs> That's awesome. no, no, I, I can,
1: I can only imagine the, uh, the, the poking of fun and the jokes that go on in a, in a military family like that. But uh uh outstanding so yeah. uh you do uh in ROTC in college mm-hmm. um, I did yeah what was that experience like
2: it was a really good balance of preparing for the military while also feeling like I was getting a college experience uh I have great respect for people who go to the naval academy and I think or you know any military academy and that bonding that you have at the academies I think is you know is second to nothing like every you don't get that in ROTC. Although I will say that I just recently had a reunion with friends from college, and it was all friends from Navy ROTC. It was kind of like our own little fraternity sorority thing. Um, So NROTC was great, because I felt well prepared to go into the military. But I also felt like, you know, I could go out and go to a beer fest when I was a freshman, (laughs) or fourth class. Um, And that, you know, that I was able to decide that, so it had the right balance of freedom and discipline for me. Uh, but you know, there certainly were wonderful, wonderful things about the academies too. And uh, my father's a naval academy graduate, but it wasn't the path that I wanted. You know, I. Had, already worn uniforms for many years, going right. to Catholic school. And I was like, I want a break. So, <laughs> but well, it worked out really well. San Diego is a huge Navy unit, as you might imagine. It's just a very large Navy ROTC unit. So it was a great place to be for that.
1: So fantastic. And uh, yeah, I, it, uh, freedom and, and, and the combination of freedom and discipline uh, you you got from ROTC. We definitely did not have the freedom component at uh, at the Naval Academy, so that was uh, I, I'm envious uh, of, that, <laughs> of that experience. Um, do me a favor though, for the benefit of the audience, can you key in on the the, the time frame that we're talking about? You don't have. Please don't you don't feel like you have to give your age, but like we're talking was, about we're talking like, about a okay. we're talking about a particular time frame yeah. in the military, and that helps set up the the on conversation that we hope to have. Uh, with you about yeah. your experience in the Navy, but like, what's going what What's going on in the U.S. Navy at the time that you're going through? Yeah, RGC?
2: absolutely. So let's see. I I got commissioned in 1989. So um, and then started flight school in the the you know early 90s. By the time, but right around that time, there was the. Um, the uh the reduction in force. So basically, the military figured out they had hired too many, or you know, brought too many people in, mm-hmm. and so they cut back and let people go early. Um, and so flight school took a while. There wasn't a, as much money to go through flight school, so that took you know a few years. Um, gosh, in America there was uh, the Clarence Thomas hearing, and you know with Anita Hill and and a lot of discussion in the media and probably in a lot of, you know, dinner tables about the role of women and how women are treated in the workplace. There was the first Gulf War that happened in the early 90s. Women served there. They were shot at. They were killed. They were taken prisoners of war. So it was a a period of time in America where attitudes and and, um, opinions about women and what they're capable of were changing. And so uh, and then there was Tailhook '91, which was a you know a, a stain on the Navy's record, unfortunately, where some people behaved very badly in Vegas at a at what used to be a great conference. Well, sorry, it still is. I haven't been in a long time, but um, it. I went to, I, The only Tailhook I've been to is the one in '91, and uh, it, it was because I had to. Our executive officer made all of us flight students go and i actually wanted to go because i heard you get to you know i saw a bunch of friends from earlier parts of flight school that i hadn't seen in a couple of years um all the defense contractors are there giving out free swag you know it's just a real celebration of naval aviation unfortunately it was right after the the first gulf war and so a lot of the aviators were um you know, they were super high on themselves. You know, they were feeling pretty victorious and no. excited about what they had done in, in the first Gulf War, understandably. Um, but that translated into some bad behavior, some sexual assault, um, and then, uh, you know, a, an investigation. And there was just, it was a tough time for the Navy, and especially for Naval Aviation. So all of that was happening right before I graduated from flight school in 1992. And at that time, women were not allowed to fly in combat aviation. And so I was assigned to a combat support squadron where I would train combat aviators. And my, my mission was, I got to fly an F-18 Hornet, which was awesome. And I would fly it like a missile. So I'd fly it really fast and really low and ships and uh, fighter pilots would practice tracking me as if I were a missile and then they'd practice shooting me down. So that was how I was you know, helping the effort was uh, by doing combat support. And you know when I got winged, you know there were rumblings. There were there was some talk that yeah, you know women might eventually be allowed into combat. And um, as a student going through jet training, I still did carrier qualifications. Um, and I remember being out on the aircraft carrier on the Ranger, and uh, we were off the coast of California. And I just remember getting. I was I had landed. And I was getting refueled. And I was just looking at this incredible teamwork on the flight deck and um, out of the ocean. And, you know, it's just incredible. It's beautiful. It was, you know, visually beautiful to be out there in the middle of the ocean. And also just to see all these people, you know, at their peak doing their job so well and working together. And I was like, God, you know, this would be really cool. I'm, I'm, I'm bummed I can't do this, but you know, I'll do whatever I can to serve and
1: support. So, so Lori, we got we got to pause here for a second because uh, okay. I, I got to help the, the, the listeners really understand the time frame that we're talking about. So, for those of you that are listening that are not of our generation, um, in 1987, um, 1986, actually, there was a movie that was released called Top Gun. <laughs> this movie... Had the entirety of American teenagers believing that they were going to be naval aviators. My own personal account of this, while I, I'm a big fan of the movie, it still in, is in my top 10 because it actually impacted my life. That movie was individually responsible for me having to do an extra year of college. I went to the Naval Academy prep school because the wow. year that I applied to Annapolis, it received the most. Solicitations for admission <laughs> in its history because of Top Gun. There is a direct correlation. So and I'm trying to set up for folks that really understand becoming a naval aviator from about 1987 to today was like the biggest thing that someone could imagine doing. So you're there in college, you are um in N R O T C. What made you what made you decide that you wanted to be uh, an able aviator? And at what point, you know, at Annapolis, we had to decide uh, two years in where we wanted to service select, like what you wanted to do. At what point did you have to decide, I want to be an aviator? And I I have to imagine there there had in terms of being a woman, there had to be only a handful of you that that selected that as the route that you wanted to pursue.
2: There, there were only a handful, and it's it's so funny you asked that because it really was a field trip that changed my life. I like I had no idea because my my father was a, a Marine Corps infantry officer, so we weren't around airplanes at all. Um, and the first exposure I really ever had to aviation was during a field trip my freshman year of college. It was over the holidays. I didn't really have anything going on. I wasn't working, and um, the ROTC unit said, "Hey, we've got this." Field trip to a bunch of naval air stations and Marine Corps air stations in Southern California, and my dad was stationed at Camp Pendleton at the time, so um, so it was easy for me to go on. And when I went on that field trip, it was the first time I'd ever talked with military aviators, been next to a military aircraft. You know, we we looked at helicopters, we looked at jets, and I was just fascinated because it was so different and so um challenging. It looked challenging, right? There's so many buttons and switches and all this stuff in a cockpit. And I had always done well in math and I liked math. Um, and they talked about, you know, how having a technical background would help. And so I thought, wow, this actually looks really cool. Uh, but when I looked around, I'm like, there's no women here. <laughs> like, is this even something I can do? And one of the pilots said, "Yeah, no, no, no. You know, like there was a woman in my flight school class, and she's flying support. And there's another woman I know who's who's an instructor pilot. So you can you can be a pilot in the military. You just can't fly in combat." And I was like, "Okay." <laughs> so um, when I went back to school, I one of the guys in my ROTC unit had his private pilot's license. So I thought, you know, I should probably make sure I'm not going to like barf. <laughs> so we went up on a flight, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, I'd never. Um, you know, I'd never been in a small aircraft before. And being up in the air and just having that freedom and that perspective in all of it, like being able to control the airplane and how it worked and all of of it was just right in my lane. And I, I loved it. And so when I got Back from that flight, I was like, "Okay, this is what I want to do." Now I know what I want to do because also, you know, I knew it was going to be challenging. There weren't that many women doing it, and I have I've always loved a good challenge. So, um,
1: so, that, so was that part of the attraction—the fact that you would be, you know, like one of one in most cases, uh, showing up um, as, as as a female naval aviator? Was that part of the draw?
2: I don't know. If it, I wouldn't say it was part of the draw. I would say that I knew that I could do it. Like I, I knew that I because I had been brought up in the military and I was familiar with the culture and I knew that I could, I, I was confident that I could have the technical skills to do this job, that was the draw. Like I knew it would be challenging. Um, when, I, when I went to flight school, I really had no, Idea that I would be one of the first women to fly in a combat aircraft. I didn't think it was going to happen that fast, as fast as it did. Although huh. it's not really fast when you think that. Think about how women were flying in the Navy since 1974. <laughs> so, um, but no, I I, I didn't go into naval aviation with the intention of becoming a you know a fighter pilot or a combat pilot. I just I went in because flying was really fun. And I wanted to serve my country, and, and I could do both of those things while being a naval aviator. So that was really the draw for me.
1: So um, I assume you, you did really well in flight school? Um, Otherwise, you would. I did well enough
2: to select chats. Yeah, Yeah, I was in the upper half of my class, so I wasn't the top student. You know, I first of all, I hate running, (laughs) so like the running stuff, the physical fitness stuff was always a challenge for me. I but I passed. You know, they they have minimum standards that are minimums for a reason. (laughs) You got to pass the minimum. Um, And I, but I did really well in the classroom, and I did really well in the airplane, and so. Um, that helped me be in the top half of my class and select jets. So,
1: so really well uh, yeah. in the classroom and really well in the jets. That's the part that really matters. And so, I want to make sure that we we double click or or yeah. uh, accentuate the fact that you did extremely well. There you are. You you were able to select jets. You're flying mm-hmm. again to help folks understand who are listening, who maybe want to part, um, don't understand where the Navy was during this particular time. Uh, the F A eighteen uh, Hornet. And still to this day the hornet if I'm not mistaken is still the principal uh, jet aircraft for um, for the Navy um, and marines um, this this is the top this is the top of the heap the, the, to get an opportunity to fly that aircraft and I, I was a logistician in the Marines uh, part of an air wing uh, that we flew uh, f a18s and deltas uh, and um, transport aircraft. And it was just the, the FA-18 was still, and it is today and was then the top of the heap. And the fact that you were selected to fly F-18s is a big deal.
2: I was, yeah, I was, uh, there weren't that many options for me as a woman coming out of flight school because women, when I graduated from flight school, when I earned my wings, women still were not allowed to fly in combat aircraft yeah. yet. So there were very few, um, roles I could go to, I could be an instructor pilot. Um, Or In one of the training squadrons, and there were a few training squadrons, or I could be a combat support pilot. And so, and that's where I went. I went to Naval Air Station Lemoore, and I flew the F-18 Hornet at VAQ-34, which shut down in 93 as part of the Base Realignment Committee. Um, And, but it was you know, super fun to fly the Hornet for a year. And I, especially land-based, it was, you know, um, I, my job was to take off and then go out and fly over a range like a missile. And then ships and other pilots would practice tracking me and pretend to shoot me down. And that way I was training them how to deal with a missile, and I got to fly a Hornet, so it was a pretty good deal.
1: <laughs> I mean, were you instructed to fly in an evasive manner to make it difficult for them? Uh, or was it like pretty straight line, sort of just, just be out there on the horizon and see if they can yeah, figure it out. Yeah,
2: It was mostly the latter, and it, it kind of depended on the profile. But, um, you know, a lot of the the flights were, um, you know, pretending to be a missile. Sometimes we actually did um uh, testing where we carry um, some kind of platform and then uh, to test it because, you know, the, the fleet guys, so the guys who are flying in fighter squadrons, they're busy getting ready to go out and deploy on a carrier. So we would take the job of, you know, testing new um, missiles or radar systems and things like that. If the test squadrons weren't doing that, we'd help out with, with things like that. Whenever they needed a hornet to go fly a mission that wasn't involved in, in combat, our squadron would help out with that.
1: So I, uh, for, again, folks listening, maybe don't know, uh, pilots and squadrons also have additional duties within the context of the squadron. Mm-hmm. What was the first assignment that you got uh, in the context of being in the squadron? Not Maybe not the first assignment, because oftentimes those are not the good ones. But what was the first one where you really had big leadership responsibilities in addition to flying? And maybe that's in your next uh, platform mm-hmm. um, that, no, required, was- that required you to kind of lead uh, in this case, most of the time, it's the uh, enlisted teams that are there in support of keeping all of those aircraft up in the air. But to describe what that experience was like a little bit. Sure.
2: My first ground job, we call them, um, at VAQ 34 was I got the line division, which is the youngest, newest sailors to the squadron. Um some of whom do not want to be there <laughs> and the line, uh, personnel are the ones who are taxiing the airplanes in, you know, giving them signals to start the engines and then taxi out. So they're working the line and they're doing things like, you know, chaining the airplanes down. They're doing a lot of grunt work and, you know, it's not an easy job. Of course, that's why they give it to the new people. So, um, but you know, it was, I love that job because a lot of these sailors weren't that much younger than me. Um, you know, they're 17, 18. By that time I was probably 24. Um, and just being able to, to have someone to know that they had someone looking out for them, I think helped them do, be- do better in the squadron and do a better job. But, you know, there were a lot of challenges with, um, well, there were some challenges with, um, with that team just because they are young, they they're inexperienced. Um, and so, you know, some of them got in trouble and, uh Figuring out how to motivate them to stay out of trouble and to, you know, and to get training and to advance in the military. It was a really great first job for me because it, it helped me learn uh, you know, in depth about the enlistment advancement system. You know, we've gotten an introduction to that in ROTC, but this was a much deeper dive into that. So that I knew exactly, you know, working with my chief petty officer, how do we make sure that that the people in the division are getting the training they need so that they can get advanced, which means they get paid more, which means hopefully Mm -hmm. less trouble and, and also more teamwork and how do they learn to work together as a team, a team. So it was, you know, what a great entree into the world of leadership in a Navy squadron, um, you know, rather than getting a job where, you know, there's some jobs in the squadron where you're not really leading a division, you're doing, um, You know like safety officer or operations officer or jobs where you're you're um, doing important work but you're not necessarily managing a team so i was really lucky to get the line division first thing
1: yeah those are more along the lines of what we call them like private sector program management responsibilities (laughs) as opposed to like direct leadership responsibilities. so you're you're leading this uh, this young group uh, of sailors um and I think most people, certainly if you haven't led in the context of the military where you're responsible for every aspect of um, you know, someone's life, I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it, the stuff they do on duty, the stuff they do off duty, it's like all of it becomes sort of fair game uh, in terms of, uh, like you said, motivating them, paying attention to their career progression and that kind of thing. Any challenges yeah. that stick out to you uh, other than sort of the, like you described the, the, the simple fact of leading very young people in the military?
2: I think it's that the thing that's different, I feel, in the military than in in civilian work is that in the military, like you said, it's also your personal life is entwined because you're working a lot of hours in the squadron. And and also when you're in a base like Lemoore, you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so your personal and professional lives tend to be meshed. And so there were personal uh, challenges that the people in my division were having, and it carried over into work all the time with each other, you know, at back in the barracks, um, you know, back uh, just at home. And so it's it was hard to separate those two, Whereas it feels like it's a little bit easier to do that in the civilian world. Um, but yeah, I think that was probably one of the biggest challenges was just that um, people, they not only work together, but most of them knew each other off base as well. And so how do you, um, you know, balance those Interpersonal dynamics and and optimize them so that people are are getting along and working well together as a team. And when conflict arises, as it inevitably will with any team, how can you help them um, resolve that in a healthy way? Yeah. So yeah, it was it was definitely challenging. But again, I mean, really, really great training for my my first real leadership role in the Navy.
1: Did you did you feel that it, you spent what ten years in the Navy?
2: Yeah. Um, yes. 10 years. Yeah.
1: Did, did you feel at any one point in time? Uh, I mean, certainly things got better over the course of time. But I mean, when you were commissioned, which I think we were actually commissioned uh, probably the same year uh, when you were commissioned. And the, the even the story you just described uh, being, you know, a female leader in a squadron, how many other females were actually even in the squadron enlisted or otherwise? Do you remember what that number look like
2: oh i don't remember the number offhand, but because it was one of the few squadrons that um was land-based and not a combat squadron but it did have jets and f-18s um we actually had quite a few female pilots there um one two three four i think there were five of us maybe six and a couple of female um uh i don't know what they were called maybe tacos in the back seat um they so they wrote in the back um i think they'd be called a wizzo now um but they weapon, control weapon you know,
1: systems officer for
2: uh, right oh, thank you uh, yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> for someone for, um, for someone listening who has no idea what a wizard
2: yeah we should probably <laughs> clarify what <more> kind of <laughs> what that means <laughs> yeah. um so yeah and in the in the enlisted ranks as well we had women um so yeah, there you know there were were women in the squadron. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But but did that uh, did that dynamic um ever show itself in ways that made it difficult to lead?
2: Hmm. I don't recall it being difficult um Yeah, I it, not in that squadron because it was a land-based squadron. It was known as, you know, not a combat squadron, so mm-hmm. I don't think Um, you know, the challenge, the challenges for us with integration with women in the Navy, in my opinion, was when women were placed in combat squadrons, because that felt like the last, um, place that, you know, we talked about the hierarchy earlier. And so naval aviation for many people in the Navy is, you know, the tip of the spear. It's, um, the most macho. Um, and so I think having women integrated into combat squadrons and especially in the fighter community, um, it felt like an I think many of the men in those communities um really struggled with being you know, their identity, right? They identified so strongly with being fighter pilots or combat pilots that and and what that meant and what being a woman meant that it was really hard for them to accept that a woman could. Do those things and be effective at them, because they had an idea of what women are capable of and what they should be doing and what's acceptable. But those were perspectives that you know in the American culture were evolving, and but uh, in some fighter squadrons they weren't evolving as quickly. So, so yeah, it was definitely challenging the the first uh, first few
1: years. So, I, I mean, I, I what I'm, I think I'm touching upon and trying to get at, I mean, you, you're the timeline for all uh, women, I think, who served during that time frame uh, for mm-hmm. me, it, it's probably not a stretch to call you guys pioneers in, in terms of what it was that you were uh, doing uh, on behalf of, in this case, mm-hmm. the Navy and the field that you're sort of breaking down this glass ceiling. There were a couple of events that happened during the time, which... Prompted the Navy to then change its policy and and uh, and allow women into these uh, uh, aerial combat uh, roles and positions. So ultimately, you did uh, serve in a uh, combat capacity, um, mm-hmm. landing on carriers doing the doing the job, right? Doing this thing that that Navy aviators uh, consider to be so uh, such a prestigious thing. Um, what was it like existing in that space? You know, operating uh, in a uh, combat capacity.
2: Well, I'll answer that, but first, I just want to say, for me, the real pioneers were the women in 1974, the first female naval aviators, because that I think was breaking a huge barrier, yep. and um, you know, so huge yeah. respect to them. Um, and it, like, I couldn't have done what I did if they hadn't done that. So, I, I really consider them the real pioneers. But I would say flying on a carrier
1: for all of us, I think.
2: Yeah. <laughs> um, it's. You know, I was talking earlier about my first time doing it during training and just being so impressed and amazed by all the people working together. And, um, you know, it's been described as like a ballet on steel. You people are just doing their thing and it all works together somehow. Um, but doing it every day and um, doing it for, you know, six months at a time when we go out on deployment. It's, it's the whole mix, right? It's super fun on some days and it's just a huge drag and it's on some days and yeah. it's terrifying on some nights. And it, you, know, you get the whole, the whole range of emotions, mm-hmm. but all in all, I, I am incredibly grateful for you know, having had that opportunity. And um, you know, it's, yeah, when I, when I see, I actually, I, I live in New York City now and I volunteer at the Intrepid Air and Space Museum. And so, you know, every every other week, I'm on the on a, on an aircraft carrier again. Yeah. And
1: fantastic you know, place I, to visit for those listening if you haven't uh, done oh, the Intrepid, it's a it's a lot of fun.
2: Thank you for that plug because it really is a great museum, um, and it just you know, it always I get that little heart thump every time I walk on board the carrier, and I like God, I would do it all over again if I could. It was it was incredibly rewarding. It was incredibly difficult, but so worth it. And I'm just really grateful I was able to do it
1: so um it, an outstanding and fascinating uh time frame, I think that uh, again, I applaud you for um for what you what you've done uh in the way of uh naval aviation and and being at really the forefront um of bringing it to a n- its current natural state, which I assume is very different now. it's been a long time since I've been in probably a while since you've been in as well um mm-hmm. but no just i I definitely see it as as pioneering um How did you um, take to the transition eventually from the military into the uh, private sector? And like, what was that transition like for you um, from a leadership standpoint?
2: Oh, wow. You know, it was really scary, to be honest, because, you know, growing up in the military, serving in the military, I basically felt like I had spent 30 years in the military. And then going into the civilian world was, it was also slightly terrifying because I don't know, being in the military just always had this feeling of, you know, civilians don't get it. They don't understand our world. They don't appreciate what we do, all those types of things. And then going and becoming a civilian was like, whoa. (laughs) But I, you know, I really wanted to have kids. And I, I didn't know that I wanted to stay in another 10 years. Um, And so it was a tough choice. But from a leadership perspective, it actually was a pretty easy transition. Because Um, I went through business school, so that helped. You know, I had a little bit of a buffer (laughs) going through and, um, you know, uh, going through school with some amazing classmates who- A
1: little bit bit of a plug. Uh, You're a Wharton grad, right?
2: I I did go to Wharton and Uh um, just a, a wonderful, wonderful business school. You know, Wharton, I don't know why, but back then, I don't know if it still does. It has this reputation of being super competitive and cutthroat. And my classmates were the most wonderful, warm, collaborative people. Um, and so my experience there was incredible, mostly because of the people, the my fellow students, the instructors, also okay, fantastic. Great. But yeah, so so that transition was, I think, easier for me because I had that buffer of business school to go through and um, create a network um, for the business world once I entered it. But even after I finished business school, I still felt like, oh my god, am I going to be successful in the business world? This is a whole new world. And so I I started thinking about it as, you know, what if I were traveling to another country what would i what would i need to know you need to know the culture you need to know the language you need to hopefully have a friend there who's been living in that country for a while and so similarly i reached out to veterans who had been working in the business world you know i paid attention to how they talked the the terms they use and i learned how to you know live in that world just like mm-hmm. every time i moved around and i'd have to learn how to live in a new city and so i think you know those skills as <laughs> as a, as a military dependent came back again to help me. But uh, as a leader, I think what I found was that the military leadership experience was was very valued because I don't think we appreciate it when we're in the military, but a lot of people don't want to lead. (laughs) They just don't want to do it. They don't want the responsibility. They don't want to have to make the hard decisions. And and so they don't become leaders. And the civilian world really needs good leaders. And having worked in, in several companies in the civilian sector, I've seen that, you know, there are, just like in the military, there are some leaders who are not great. And there are some leaders who are amazing. And, all, you know, the whole spectrum. So, but the military leadership experience that you get, especially because it starts at an early age and you you learn, you have to learn how to be a good leader. Um, that helped me a lot in the civilian world. I felt like I was able to advance more quickly because of my leadership skills.
1: So you, you had a um, an interesting run in the private sector before we even get to the point where you're at the, the executive coaching you're doing. Uh, you spent right. some time in the consulting world. Um, mm-hmm. You've done some, uh, some very different roles, I think, from uh, in the tech space and otherwise. Uh, you've had a touchdown at a few of the Uh, more notable companies. I guess another thing we share is you're you're an ex-Googler as well. Um, Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit about sort of that trajectory through um, the private sector. Were there leadership roles there that you experienced that sort of left uh, an imprint on you?
2: There were. Um, I'd say my first really big leadership role was running marketing at military.com. And that was really where I learned all about online marketing and digital marketing and Mm -hmm. um, Prior to that, that was after I'd done the management consulting. And I had done marketing strategy at Bain and Company, but I hadn't really done the operational part. So while I, I was the VP of marketing at military.com, that's where I really learned, you know, the day to day, how do we do these campaigns? How do we drive business objectives through marketing? How do but it was all the marketing. So it also included PR, it included events, you know, how do we run events for military spouses? Um, So it was a great training. I learned a ton during my time there. Um, And then I'd say probably, you know, the time at Google and Facebook were also, um, you know, they had a huge influence on me just because both of those teams were teams that I had to grow because of the added responsibilities we had. Both of them supported product. And so as the products expanded, um, our ability to support them had to expand. At Google, it, it was through online communities and social media support. and at Facebook it was through Help center content and online learning. So um, both of those, as you know, the products expanded, our teams also had to grow. And so supporting teams through that growth was always fun, um, challenging, but fun. Yeah. And I you know, I always really enjoyed being able to, help the product teams make sure that um, the the users, the customers who needed to be able to use those products knew how to do it. So um, it was a really interesting blend of customer support, marketing, and education.
1: So really a a good variety of experiences. Um, What gets you to the point, though, that where you're thinking about leadership in terms of coaching others? Uh, and feeling like you've got enough under your belt in the way of experience to really help other folks on their journey?
2: I think because so many of my roles in the civilian sector were leadership roles, um, when I reflected back, you know, when I was at Facebook, I was starting to think about what was next. And when I looked at all all the roles I had had and what I enjoyed the most in those roles, it was always the coaching. It was always the people support development. And so I, I thought, well, how can I do more of that and maybe less of, um, you know, uh, performance reviews and a lot of the, I love strategy. I do miss doing strategy, but um, just some of the, you know, all the meetings, all those things, I started thinking, maybe I want to focus more on personal development. And so um, I went to a coaching class uh, that was run by Coactive Training Institute or CTI. And it was a, a kind of a fundamental class of coaching, and I just I remember feeling like these are my people. Like these people get it. Like this is exactly the kind of work I want to do. And it was really about supporting um, anyone, right? CTI is all kinds of coaching. It's not just leadership coaching or executive coaching. It's life coaching. Um, and so that was where I I recognized. Okay, this is what I really love doing. This is what I'm good at. I want to. This is the path I want to go down. Um, because I think that's, what's important. Like a lot of us get sucked into that model, that role of, I need to do the things that I'm good at, whether or not I like them because mm-hmm. I need to make money. <laughs> right. And wow. so I think being able to, you know, and being, recognizing my privilege that I've had this wonderful education and some amazing professional experiences that enabled me to be in a position where I have learned how to be a good leader and how to support people and coach people to be good leaders, mm-hmm. um, I was really fortunate to pivot and and become an executive coach and start doing that full time.
1: Is it uh, as rewarding as you expected it to be?
2: It is. But you know, the thing that I did not expect is that it's kind of lonely just because I don't have a team. You know, I can manage all the admin myself and I've got a great CRM and all that. But I do miss supporting a team like that. That part is a little bit. uh, That's the one thing that the one downside, I would say, but it's amazingly. Uh, fulfilling to know that I'm helping people and that I'm supporting them. And I, I, you know, I've recognized that one of my values is service and that, you know, initially that was serving my country. Now it's serving leaders and teams. And I'm just really lucky to be able to be in a a job where I get to honor my values.
1: So uh, Lori, I've asked all of my guests, and I intend to continue this debate moving forward. uh, The age old question are leaders born or made? Where do you where do you fall out on that uh, <laughs> on that question?
2: Wow. Um, uh, I'd say I think you can learn how to be a good leader. So I'm going to say made, but I will say you cannot be a good leader if you don't care about people. You have to. I feel like you have to care about people, um, which is might sound contradictory because a lot of times as a leader you have to make hard decisions that might not be in an individual's best interest but it's the interest of the mission right or the company and that's always that was always the hardest part about being a leader but yeah i'm going to say they can be made
1: well certainly uh as an executive coach you hopefully you want to support the theory that you can teach people certain (laughs) aspects right of uh, of, or should i i shouldn't say teach maybe just influence uh, folks to develop particular skills that uh, that might be helpful to them in their uh, leadership journeys. Uh, Lori, this has been a fantastic uh, conversation. Um, Thanks. You, you've, had, you've had uh, and continue to have an amazing career. Uh, I hope that uh, that folks and listening to some of your career journey get motivated. I hope that there's uh, that someone listening that uh, that recognizes that uh, there are difficult things that you can sign up for and do and be successful. Uh, you just got to lean into them uh, and understand that yeah. you are capable of doing the hard work. So that was awesome. So Lori, fascinating conversation. Uh, where can folks find you, or how can they get in touch with you if they uh, if they want to know more about Lori drowdy uh, In your journey? well,
2: I've made it easy. Uh, my website is lori <laughs> and that's for my speaking website. I have a website, Supersonic Coach dot com as well for coaching and i think you know on on all the social medias i am Lori drowdy l-o-r-e-e-d-r-a-u-d-e on twitter instagram i have not made the jump to tiktok i'm still <laughs> i yeah i gotta work on my dance moves before i get on tiktok but um and then people are welcome to yeah thank you <laughs> you can also email me laurie l-o-r-e-e at com outstanding thanks Lori
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast with M.K. Palmore, part of the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this conversation made you think, then add this show to your favorite podcast player, subscribe to the ITSP Magazine YouTube channel, and share the ITSP Magazine Podcast Network with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to connect your brand to our conversations, And our audience, visit ITSBmagazine.com to learn how to sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.